Welcome to another episode of Behind the Music Biz podcast presented by Ray's Rowdy. My name is Peyton Heben. I'm going to be your host on today's episode. Today's guest is Clay Newman, and you'll hear Clay's story about his experience in radio promotion, working in the Texas country music scene, his move to Nashville, and his transition into artist management and development, and the rise of his current company, Driver's Seat Entertainment. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. Rowdy Podcast, hosted by Peyton Heaven. Well, Clay, thanks for hopping on here. I'm sorry that the... Uh the cameras and stuff weren't working, so we're just audio for today until we have you back. Uh, no worries. Well, I, I was having a bad hair day, you know. <laughs> Since you're not on camera, he doesn't have any hair. Yes. For anyone listening. I mean, you haven't seen the mullet, or the, <laughs> the I'm bringing the rat tail back. I just yeah. haven't told anyone yet. I'm going to take my shirt off next year, and then you'll see that whole thing's been growing for an entire <laughs> year. Um, yeah, so we'll just jump right in. Your current position, I mean, you own Driver's Seat Entertainment. Correct. Artist Management. Yeah, kind of does three things. Yeah. Okay. Artist management, um, consult, there's kind of three divisions. Artist management, consulting, and then I'm just finishing the soft launch of an artist development program, a six-month kind of boot camp designed to help grow hard tickets. Awesome. We'll get into that later. Totally. Starting off, how did you get into music? What was your What made you decide music business is for me? Well, great question. And this is, I love hearing how everyone got into it because there's no one direct, you know, route. Um, and so mine, I've always, always been hugely into music, even at a very young age. Um, I used to drive my parents crazy. I would take their old pots and pans and literally, no joke, would take a, um, oh, the old um, grocery um, sacks and then the rubber bands from newspapers and then make drums in the basement and then take old sticks and literally beat the crap out of them. And then finally, my aunt, you know, my aunt, my mom, you know, they're sisters, you know, how there's always a little tension there. So she decides to get me a drum set for my birthday and, and it for Christmas. And I see it. I love it. Of course, it ends up setting up right downstairs, right below the kitchen. So I can only picture my mother <laughs> preparing a meal and me just banging the crap out of these drums and her just going, good Lord, this is like my next. And that's right when Walkman's came out. So I've got headphones on and I'm just playing the crap out of them. And she's probably having a nervous breakdown, you know, but, um, but I've always, you know, long story short, I've always been into music and I was actually going to be a doctor, the first doctor in my family. And that was a big deal. And so finally, you know, I was the only one, I'm from Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, and the only one that didn't go to UK, you know, there's still some bitterness there, but we've worked through it. And, you know, I was fortunate enough. I consider it, I joke, I say that we're the last dumb class that got into Vanderbilt, but we really were the last dumb class that got into Vanderbilt. And, you know, at the time, you know, when I was there, as I approached graduation, I was getting ready to, you know, go through all the medical stuff. And it dawned on me, here I'm in Music City. I love music. 
I would hate myself if I did not give myself an opportunity to pursue, you know, a passion. I'd played in bands all through grade school, all through high school. I mean, like my entire life. What kind of bands? Oh, great. First one, the uh, Strangers, you know, rock bands, you know, rock and kind of all genre stuff, you know, and playing mostly the drums. That had been kind of my main instrument. And so, and with these, I mean, I always, that's something I was always into, you know. And so finally, I did the research, you know, and realized that, okay, in the late 90s to get, you know, the really to get your foot in the door, the best, the most proven way, there's no proven way, but if you can get in with a major label, then that was golden because they're really hard to get a job there. But once you get in, you can really rise up so much quicker, you know, than you would in any other field. And so that's what I did. And finally I got after a year and a half of banging on doors, you know, taking, um, or going in meeting almost all of music row. I finally, was able to secure an internship, you know, one of 20 out of like, I don't know, two, 300 kids that interviewed to get this free unpaid internship. So then I had to tell my parents, you know, about it going into graduation. I invited them to Nashville and told them we need to reconnect. They knew something was up and long story made short, you know, I told them about the job or about the inter- the internship, you know, explained what a big deal it was, told them I've already got something that I can do to, you know, make expenses meet and I really want to give this a shot. And so... That's the very short version of the story. And, and once I got in, you know, I actually had, I do have to tell us part of it, my old uh, fiddle teacher, Crystal Pullman, I got her to write a She knew how tough music I was. I got her to write a letter that said that I was in this one last class, I'd already graduated, <laughs> that, that gets out at 8, 8 a.m. so I could get to Aris to, like, right after. And so I just, from, like, 8.15, to make it look real, up until, like, midnight. I mean, I was there, like, every night of the week doing everything they had me do and anything, you know, I was kind of like, if you needed something done, you know, I was the guy. So just kind of work, you know, try to make myself invaluable. And so I did that for six months. And then they offered me my first, you know, paid job down in Dallas as regional coordinator. So before we get to that, talking about the education thing, you, so you went to Vanderbilt. Correct. And you wanted to be a doctor. So what was your major at Vanderbilt? Psychology. Psychology. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. And then you're planning to go to med school? Correct. That was at Vander- Vanderbilt too? Um, no, I mean, I was going to apply to various medical schools. Gotcha. But no. Okay, gotcha. Um, so what is your opinion on, because obviously being in the music business, went for psychology, like people who are in the industry that don't have a background in music business, like they didn't go to Belmont and study mm-hmm. music business. What's your opinion on that? My opinion, and this it's wild. I, I'm really, I'm a big believer. Um, and I actually got this from my, my father, believe it or not, you know, who's like very much against me doing this. But, you know, one thing that he did, you know, say is that, you know, there's nothing like the school of hard knocks. There, really, there's no, no substitute for experience. And I, I would make a strong argument that whatever I've learned, I, you know, I haven't taken any music business program specifically, but just being a student of the game, you know, going out there, meeting people, finding out their stories, you know, you have enough conversations, everyone's going to get to Donald Passman's book, you know, you'll get to the certain, yeah, right there, Exhibit A, you know, you're, yeah. you're going to get to all those and, you know, reading the trades and just consuming all of it and learning, it, it changes so much. It really is about, you know, going in there. I mean, I believe you learn more on the job and learn more when you treat it you know, as you're a total student of a living thing that's happening than you ever could 
in class. I, I really believe that. I honestly think you can even learn more from reading the current trades and seeing what's happening. You know, and again, I say this, I mean, if I weren't, took a, got an MBA at Belmont, you know, I, I might say a different thing, but I will say that the School of Hard Knocks has served me well. I've learned a lot from mm -hmm. it. I agree. I mean, I was the same way. And I've come to find out, I mean, just reading the books, because that's the same book that Belmont uses. Yeah. So oh, yeah. it's, I'm not having to pay. I mean, people who want to go for music business, go for music business. Yeah. But anything you go for, psychology, even sociology, it still has aspects that you can use towards sociology, psychology, understanding people yes. and the way people work. It's a huge part of music business, Massive. Especially, especially management. Yes. On that note, um, I have a consultant I've had for a decade. His name's Chris Weinberg. He owns a company, Well Coached, and it's an incredibly unique niche. He, he's really one of the only ones, the only one on Music Row, you know, that I know that does this. He consults for Creative Nation, um, for TriStar Entertainment, for Smack Songs. I mean, he's just, he's an incredible human being. But part of what his special sauce is, is learning disc profiles. You know, and that's if you know how to read disc profiles and to read other people's disc profiles, you know, even they haven't you can figure out what kind of personality and meet people where they are. That alone, just being able because we all speak a different language. We don't think that we do, but we do, mm -hmm. you know, so that um, so back to being able to understand psychology and understand human nature is is huge. Yeah, it's just I mean, you can learn that in anything, even finance, like just sales. Yes. It's a big part of, I mean, I guess anything you did in life. But uh, going back to uh, your first internship, what was that label? That was Arista Austin. And what uh, artists were on there? Okay, the that we were kind of like the Lost Highway. We actually, proud to say we were there before Lost Highway. Mercury started Lost Highway. Um, but we had our big flagship was Robert Earl Keane. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So, you paint a picture. Yeah, so we had, yeah. but we had Robert Earl Keane. We also had... A lot of stuff more in the alternate, adult alternative vein, even though Robert was. So um, Lightning 100 here in Nashville is an adult alternative album, you know, rock station. And so we also used to have the Phoenix, you know, which is non-commercial adult alternative station. And so that label was designed to kind of service both of those formats. So, you know, after Radney Foster did his thing in, in country and then released See What You Want to See, that was released specifically to go towards you know, AAA radio. And so Radney was also on the label, you know, he ultimately became in a way indirectly the godfather that, you know, what became the Texas country format. He produced Randy Rogers. Um, we had Aubrey Moore, an incredible singer from Austin. And then we had Jeff Black and we, and so essentially, you know, Jeff was more on the folk end. Aubrey was more kind of on the alternative rock end. And, um, and yeah, so my job for them like if you live in Nashville, you see the Nashville scene everywhere. Those are called the alternative news weeklies. I worked for the publicist for Arista Austin, Athena Fortenberry. So my job was to go through all the tour markets of all of our roster, call up the people. We had a you know list from M Street of all the press people, all the alternative news weeklies specifically, you know, and I would call them and I would pitch for editorial content. And so, and again, getting back to sales, that's what it is. Yeah. It's total sales. And so I just, I remember like pitching Robert O'Keen talking to whoever wrote the Alternative News Weekly in Athens, Georgia, you know, and I'm sitting there, you know, I'm really young and I think my voice doesn't carry. And I didn't realize, cause I, I don't know if you notice, I do have hearing aids because yeah. I played drums forever. So I would talk really loud only because I didn't know, I thought everyone else couldn't that, hear, yeah. but they can. And so apparently I was screaming the whole time and I would, you know, 
all this enthusiasm. I talked to the, you know, the, the guy that runs the deal, whatever paper that was. And I was like, Oh my God, you get to go see Robert O'Keefe. That's amazing. And so finally didn't boy, I had to move my office. He's like, this guy's just too loud. We need him, put him in a closet somewhere. But, um, but that's what I did. You know, I got um, folks hyped up to do write-ups, editorial write-ups for our roster. So what was your exact title at the label? I was a, I mean, the very first internship, I was assistant to the um, head, of, head of publicity nice. for um, a thing for me for Aris to Austin. And then, so you moved down to Texas. Mm-hmm. What was the next step for you down there? Because obviously for anyone listening, <laughs> country music and the music scene is all one but Nashville and Texas are yeah. two completely separate entities. Correct. The Texas scene is way different than what we got going on here in Nashville. Um, you get a lot of products from Texas who end up in Nashville. Cody Johnson, mm-hmm. Randall King. They all, I guess, yeah, Parker McCollum. Yeah. Parker McCollum. Miranda. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Miranda. Eli Young Band. Yeah. yeah. But then you get a lot of people like Josh Abbott Band that really Aaron just Mark. stay down in Texas. It's, it's while the, the Texas Nashville thing, that's a great question too, because there's a very, um, and the question was, what's the difference between the two? Well, it was just, what was your next step? Like just being in Texas. Oh yeah. Okay. My, my next role, the first one was with, was, was with Aris to Austin, even though I was based out of the Nashville office. My next one, this kind of confusing was with Aris to Nashville, the country label, but based down in Texas. And so they... I mean, a really well-structured job. It was the ultimate hot seat job. Um, it was incredibly demanding. I had three bosses. I had two regionals for country radio. And that's when I really got some part of the country radio promotion department, which at the time, even before social media, I mean, radio was everything, especially for like country and for pop. So that was like you either on radio or you weren't, you know. And then I worked also for the, um, one of the top VPs of sales and marketing and Kelly Rich. And so now I'm in the marketing department. And so I'm on both of these calls of these kind of competing, um, departments, you know, historically, but I was doing it for Ariston Asheville for the, for the mothership. So we had Alan Jackson, Brooks and Dunn, Diamond Rio, Pam Tillis, Leroy Parnell, you know, like it was pretty much us at MCA that kind of ran the show. Yeah. These are some pretty big names. Yeah. And we, and I tell you, I, I got to see, there's another great book that everyone, you know, if, if you're really curious and want to know about the history of radio promo, I never did any of this stuff, um, but there's a great book called Hitmen, and it talks about um, pop radio kind of way back in the day. I mean, it delves into pale and all that. You know, what, what I learned was that, you know, how, the reason people were able to get records played was, you know, they would follow up, you know, and it was all legal stuff, you know, if a station artist is going to play a show for say at the time, even before it was the Woolfields K-Plex in Dallas, you know, K-Plex is a presenting station. They would make sure they've got, you know, the meet and greets, all the, you know, tickets that they need, all the promotional stuff that they need, you know, to really make the show great. And, you know, they, that was kind of what the labels, you know, I don't say had over them, but they also were paying regionals every week. They'd hop on a plane every Monday night and go visit all of the music directors in their region. And they might stay at the end for a show, you know, with one of their folks, but basically they are just, they're the lifeline. So they were thick as thieves with all of these music directors. And so every week it was, they would go through every ad in the country and the state in for country is important to know. 
for country, like they have a bulleted system, which means your song's either moving up, you know, or it's not. Mm-hmm. And at least back in that time period, if you lost your bullet, if you lost your upward movement for two weeks, the song could actually like go away. And what that meant before, remember, imagine a world before social media and before all, YouTube, yeah. all this stuff. Then, I mean, if you're an emerging artist, that, that meant that, guess what? You know, your record might not even be released. You could be dropped from the label. So now take newbies where like they're literally on death row every single week to stay alive. And so it might be one ad up in the Northeast that like saved a Brad Paisley record, you know, from, you know, going, going away. So it was, it was pretty intense. And so my job was to assist them, whatever they said I did. And, um, for both of them, but then they gave me, you know, 20 stations to learn from stations that if I damaged a relationship, I'm trying to say politically correct, if I damaged, you know, if I, you know, really upset, let's say a music director in San Angelo, Texas or Jonesboro, Arkansas, Brooks and Dunn still goes platinum. I get replaced, you know, but they, at least I could learn from them and also, you know, develop, um, develop my own sales skills, right. my own sales style. And so that, that honestly was a really pivotal moment because there I learned if there's like 2000 country stations and we're only working these top monitored stations that leaves another, you know, let's say if there's a couple hundred, 28 or, you know, 1800 that are not being taken care of. And so that was kind of the birth of what, at least what I saw of what could be a whole nother, when you're talking about Texas and mm-hmm. Nashville building of a subgenre, you know, cause a lot of that really, really drove that birth, believe it or not, was terrestrial radio down there. So on the topic of radio, now we have, I mean, you, radio is always big. Still, I think it always will be big. But you have Sirius XM that comes mm-hmm. in. You have Apple Music, Spotify, um, all these streaming platforms. Um, and then you have TikTok and social media, people mm-hmm. promoting that way rather than just coming out and hitting radio. So what's your opinion on radio in today's music market totally. and what it will be in the future? Really, really, really great question, by the way. Thank you. And so, yes. <laughs> so here, here, here's the way I look at it. Um, what really made, I'm going to kind of go down a little dirt road, I'm going to bring you back. You know, what made the Texas thing really work was they already had real fans on the ground because they were actually building the markets. They were going back there. I mean, Pat Green, before he blew up, I mean, he was already selling out Billy Bob's two nights a week. You know, and the big, what, Program directors would say over and over is like, okay, we got this kid, Pat Green, who's selling out Billy Bob's, you know, 5,500 cap two nights in a row. And we've got this new, I won't mention a name, but developmental artist on whatever label, you know, and they're on the way to a number one and we can't get a hundred people, you know, to go there and see, he's got to come in as like an opener or something, you know, how do we, you know, how do we um, make sense of that? And so I think right now we're honestly in, in the golden age because, and I think honestly, this is a golden age, even for radio, from a standpoint of before we'd have to prove hard ticket. I mean, if you're doing something grassroots, you'd have to prove it from a hard ticket standpoint, you know, and then, I mean, that's a story that like no one can argue with at all. And let's face it, like anytime anyone, you know, happened with Eli Young Band, it ha- once you've got hard tickets, you know, then no one can argue with that. Well, now digital media, take a Chase Matthew, you know what I mean? Take anyone who, um, oh, Trey Lewis, you know, all these folks that have gone, you know, viral, well, hugely viral. Well, there's also, you know, science to it. I and mean, if you have that many real human beings that are following your music, 
you know, there comes a certain threshold where like, okay, it's a pretty safe bet. There's hard tickets, you know, to follow yeah. that. And you get them out on the road and you prove it and you prove it over and over. So, but at the end of the day, I think ra- radio is kind of that, that at the end of the day, they're always going to be serving their community. It's only ever going away. There's certain things that, that stations, you know, the service, their community are going to be a part of. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you can predict, and I forget which artist it was that also, before you would do, think about this way, in the old days, you'd send an artist out for three or four months. And it's like a political campaign. They're just shaking hands and kissing radio babies. Tour, like radio radio tour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very intense. And they're getting all the votes in before they go for ads for like yeah, three that's months. Like, that's acoustic, like just you and a guitar traveling the country, right? Correct. Yeah, going into the radio stations, you yeah. know, and into the PDs and they'll bring like everyone in a conference room and you play. Sometimes they'll just meet you and like stare you up and down and you just kind of have to hold frame. And, and so, but what they're doing is they're seeing that, okay, if he, if they're already taking, you know, this much of a measure to get in the market, then we, you know, and the song is strong because there's two elements, like the song's a hit, but then, you know, what kind of team is bringing that song to them? What kind of management do they have? What kind of infrastructure do they have? Are they going to be able to follow that up? Like if I had two records, which is going to have, I don't want to say Jared Schumann said it the best at an interview with um, Rick Barker, but he said, if there's two artists going for ads, which one has got, and they're both equally good, great records, which one is in best position to capitalize from that ad? And that kind of speaks towards Sirius XM where the Highway Patrol, you know, some of the best research in country music. Yeah. And they would, and that's what, you know, John Marks would look at, you know, like which, you know, which one is in the best position to capitalize on that. And so I think with all the new you know mediums out there i think it's incredible because instead of going on a hunch uh, we but think about on one of their spectrum hey we're going on a hunch and it might be like the label head of this is a right. single we think it's a single promotion department's like it's not the single but we can't tell him that because he's paying us they go to their radio folks radio folks like really track number three that's your single and a lot of promoters would do this. They would finally say, well, go ahead and test it, but don't tell anyone. They'd come back saying, by the way, we got about 15 stations that saying that this song is the single. And all of a sudden, Emperor sees the clothes, goes, okay, single number three. We're going to go there, you know, and they would do it. Well, now think about it. You can test m- music, can prove itself digitally yeah. long before. And then you throw it proving itself digitally and live. So then when it's time to actually, you know, put some coin behind it, you're actually, it's proven. Yeah. So as a scientist, getting back to the whole, you know, science thing, I'm like, this is the golden age. We don't have to throw darts at a board. I mean, we can actually determine. I think, uh, I mean, people can dive into this as much as they want, but Luke Holmes, yeah, prime example of yeah. this, had Hurricane yep. that he was promoting on Vine. Yeah. Got f- essentially famous off that. Played that show for Peachtree Entertainment, Bradley Jordan, and mm-hmm. then um, I want to say it was at... Uh, not Eddie's Attic, uh, Georgia Theater, something like, or 40 Watt, Yeah, I think. Um, not, I don't think there was a single pre-sale ticket sold, but the line was like out the door, just packed to come see him play Hurricane. Yeah. This was before everything. Mm-hmm. Two years later, Hurricane's the number one on radio. Yeah. Just because it, they had shown what it could do by just hard tickets and social media. Mm-hmm. You see with Tennessee Orange and Megan Maroney, it changed yeah. her entire life. Yeah. Proof of concept. Such a simple concept, but that's what it is. It's proof of concept. Yeah. You know, um, there are plenty of examples. And then even, you know, you'd look at, you know, Riley Green, you know, 
I mean, they would set shows up, you know, Joey Wood around, um, you know, SEC game days, you know, but, you know, the attendance, you know, these are real people going to buy, you know, go to see a show. They're paying money to yeah. go see it. You know, especially with the song, too. That's a whole other thing. I mean, you can have a song that can go hugely viral. Megan Rooney is an excellent example, you know, and they, it's just, it's proof. It's proof of concept. So instead of going, any, meeny, miny, mo, what do we think? You know, now when it proves itself, you know, it's, um, it's, I, I believe we're in the golden age, honestly, of that. I think the biggest challenge is you can have a song go viral, but an, if an artist hasn't at least have enough of an infrastructure to know that it can be followed up on the road, yeah. does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, and then that's been a message that's been beaten into me from friends in Music Row of, you know, hey, we can have something that you can chase, but not everyone's ready to go out there, you know, and do what it takes on the so road. Like, so meaning, like if, if I were to, have a song blow up on social media. Correct. I it gets the radio, whatever. But if my stuff isn't ready to go, like on a tour, or I can't sell enough tickets, is that what you're saying? Or no, you can't. You know, one get a band together, you know, yeah. and be able to get out there and follow up that tour, you know, and realize all of the headaches, all the stuff, you know, that goes along with it. Um, yeah, I mean, and I'll have a live set. You know, it's one thing. Okay, you made a great record. What's your live show like? Yeah. You know, and there's certain things that you can only learn, you know, by getting out there, you know, and doing it. And I think that's a big thing. Another big thing with social media is you get these artists that blow up on social media for just anything. They don't have original music out yet. Mm -hmm. They could blow up for covering Zach Bryan. Mm -hmm. um, they've never played a live show ever. So it's like, how could, how could anybody take a risk on these people when they have no nothing other than that one video yeah so it's all it's all an interesting dynamic in today's day and age totally I, th I think one feeds the other you know and vice versa because let's face it when you go see a show there's nothing cooler you know we can all name shows that we've gone to and we have just been blown away you know an opener that we didn't see coming yeah you know i remember even going seeing like luke bryan and um uh the Choctaw Casino and Durant, you know, and Dustin Lynch opened up and I'd never seen Dustin live. We came in like probably three songs towards the end and we're all looking at each other going, I didn't see that show coming. I mean, that was like one of the best given we only saw the tail end of it, but it was, you know, at the end of the day, you know, people, you know, it all, all roads kind of, lead, not to quote um, Tom Jackson, but all roads lead to the stage, at least for the artist, you know, and that's where, you know, experience is, is huge, you know, and being able to, you know, being able to follow that up and being able to go through all the challenges, getting to the right band, you know, and actually being able to handle. I mean, it's, you know, you've been on the road. It's not easy. Yeah. So you're down in Texas. What was, what came after the label side of things? Did, was there another? Well, there's another move. Yeah. Then after, after we kind of, I basically, I took the non-reporting stations, yeah. you know, and grew that list with the blessing of my bosses to like 80 more stations. And I asked the 10 that I knew were lying to me because I could prove from SoundScan they were lying to me or bending the truth, you know. So once we did that and once I was able to kind of prove concept, they moved me up to be head of promotion for Arist Austin. So then I was back at Arist Austin based out of Nashville, but working all the AAA stations across the country. And they had me work in multiple formats too. So I got to learn how radio promo worked, you know, on multiple levels. And we ended up that year after winning like independent um, label of the year. And I got promoter of the year, nominated in two categories, one in one of them. And then that was right when they had to shut the label down because they were 
downsizing. There was just one set of zeros and commas that was not involved with Arista Austin for them to, to keep the label. But then that was the birth of me going independent because at that time I'd hired all the best Americana promoters, the best secondary country promoters, even AC promoters, alternative rock promoters, morning show promoters. I mean, I had a whole list of people that I'd hired now because of that experience. So I knew what they did and didn't do. And so I looked at it going, okay, I already know what this landscape looks like. You know, I can offer something unique. And I went to them, not in competition. I said, hey, hope you remember how hard I work. And if you pass on anything, please think of me. And so coming, I'll never go after any of your clients. And by coming at it that way, which I've seen other people become independent from radio and they came in a competitive kind of way. And I'm like, that's just so not good. And they just ended up getting crushed. And so when I came in that way, I mean, 48 hours, I had like two years of a book of business done. They're like, yes, here, that's the guy, you know? And then I, you know, followed up on what I promised. I said, okay, I'm going to deliver, you know, and I delivered. And so then the referrals kept going. So that was the birth of um, Apex Music. And then after that, with the timeline, what came after that? After that, okay, grew Apex, then started a label from there after we helped like Smith Music and a bunch of other labels kind of start their thing. So Smith Music, sorry to interrupt. Smith Music is distribution down in Texas, right? Distribution, but they also had a label too. They do have a label. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know if they do the label anymore. I know they do distribution, but at the time it was, it was both distribution and label. Gotcha. And so essentially then we, I started Apex Nashville, you know, and we took, you know, we had for a decent run, um, Randy Rogers, not Randy Rogers, excuse me, Jason Bowen and the Stragglers, you know, we had, um, did a couple core eight more projects, you know, and then when cross Canadian ragweed broke up, you know, the big one was we took the, um, the departed, this is Indian land, you know, and we released that and it was done through all this was done through David Macias at 30 Tigers, who was also nice. part of that ex Arista family. So he had built a distribution company designed for independent labels where he, they come and fill in a lot of the marketing services. So that enabled uh, me to do that. And so and it was me and my business partner, Rob Reed, uh, who was, he used to do the Southwest Southeast for one of um, Arista's labels. Gotcha. So what was your day to day like with apex? Cause obviously starting from the ground up essentially. Yeah. It's not an easy thing. I mean, I've done it and it's, yeah, it's financially tough a lot of times. Oh yeah. But so, just tell me more about starting from the ground up. Totally, totally. Well, it wasn't half from the ground up because remember when I was a coordinator, part of my job was to call these non-reporting stations. Mm-hmm. So that whole time I'm sitting here figuring out which stations, you know, were really supportive. So I'd already kind of vetted, let's say two, 300 stations getting down to like the top 80 that I knew would really get behind this and music directors that really, you know, saw the vision. So I kind of already had that Intel, you know, and when I started, you know, perfect serendipitous timing we caught wind of Shane Media wanting to start a, a, a chart to reflect that so of course I connect with Katie Key and Ed and Pam Shane and you know I send them all my intel I'm like hey I've already done all the research here are the good ones take them you know they announced the chart um, months later and most of the list you know they only started with 30 stations but most of them were on you know the list that I'd already kind of pre-vetted if that makes sense and so the big one for us was Pat Green and um and Corey Morrow's songs we'd wish we'd written. You know, Pat was huge, and that record was just incredibly well-received. And ironically, um, we actually got debuted on national um, radio with a Django Walker song, Texas On My Mind. Mm -hmm. And what was funny is I was actually competing with my old boss. (laughs) 
which was kind of cool. You know, so we, I mean, we, and we debuted at 60 and then stayed there for a little bit, then went away. But the fact that we're even competing right. at that level. And so you would think there was a ton of business after that massive case study, you know, but no, it's still, there was a, you know, you know how this industry is, mm-hmm. you know, very um, cynical. It's like, well, let's see if that happens again. Yeah. And for four years, it was like, let's see if that happens again. And after a while, you know, then came Randy Rogers, you know, Kevin Fowler, Aaron Watson, and somewhere in like the second year, first year and a half, then everyone realized, wait, this has worked every single time. Maybe he's onto something. Maybe we should take a look at it. And then it was just, we, it was like me and one competitor, one competitor turned into 20 competitors. Every, it was like a gold rush. Everyone was going down there probably within the first year, but in the very beginning, you would think, you know, after one huge success, everyone would go, Hey, let's go do this. But still, you know, it took a while. Right. You know, many, um, and also in doing it, you know, the program that I kind of designed in radio, which is a little bit modeled after what Ariston, what the majors would do. I made modifications like every month to that, to make it more and more streamlined. For example, in the beginning, if we, you know, our says, Oh, I don't do promo tour, you know, we need the business. We're like, okay, we'll go work it. Well, then they'll go, well, how come that other artist is up here? I'm like, well, remember I said the promo tour kind of helped. Well, but he's done that and that's where he is and you have it. And, this is where you are. And so that's what that gap looks like. And so then we would, you know, require it, you know, and then we had it so long that it would literally drive people crazy. We're like, okay, we got to dial it back a little bit. So then we'd find out what that sweet spot was. And it turned out to be three weeks. Mm -hmm. And then we found out, okay, of all the stations, if we had to dial it down to just the minimum, but the ones that would have the biggest impact, you know, now we're having it down to these 20 stations during these times. So instead of having to figure out when they can have folks on, we've already done all that math. Yeah. So we can have an intern literally go in and like schedule it. And we already had to deal with them saying, okay, we won't send you more than like one a week or whatever. So that's how we were able to easily, when someone came in, say, here's the plan, you know, and here's how you're going to feel on week three. And if you're complaining, I don't want to hear it, you know, and if you're on board, you know, then we're going to remember this day and we're on board, but this is exactly how it's going to go. And the only reason we could say that and do it was because we had proved it going through all those different trials. And that was just one thing. I mean, we'd have like thank you calls on a certain week. We had certain things that we had the artists do. We just figured out the most optimal system, you know, to where it's like running on a treadmill. It's like, okay, here's what you need to do. But like, it's going to really get much better once you finish these three months. Then people would say, okay, yes, we got to suck it up for three months and do all this stuff. And then they'd see the quickest path to results, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, and then it, it just kind of went on from there. So throughout that whole process and everything, what was the biggest skill you felt you needed for that position? Um, and what was like the, the biggest thing that you learned through the process about the business and yourself being in the business? Another really, really great question. And this is going to sound kind of crazy, but there's a, a term I've recently become you know, acquainted with called a machine. Have you ever heard of machinist mindset? It's kind of an engineering term and essentially what it means the way an engineer will approach a problem they'll hit you know they're they're growing whatever little system they're growing whatever it is and then they'll hit a constraint and then they will test and test and test and find a way to get over that wall or that fence post or whatever you know and then once it's proven repeatedly then that becomes part of the system until they hit the next constraint and test 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 until you find out how to get over that wall and then it's proven Well, to do that, it takes patience, it takes grit, it takes fortitude, it takes someone, you know, I mean, you got to be able to take the bullets, you know, while you're figuring out a way to get over that bunker, you know, so, so much of it was, 
you know, grit, determination. And also too, once you've gone over two or three fence posts and you know that you've got the, the skills, it's like, if I don't know the answer, I have the skill set to figure out what that answer is. You know what I mean? While at the same time, and you know this, you know, at the same time communicating, you know, to the artist, to the client, Hey, it's going to be okay. You know, remember the last seven fence posts It's just another fence post. We're going to get over it. Just like we did the last seven, <laughs> you know, calm down. It's going to be fine. You know, and we figure out the best way to get over that fence post and we do it, you know, and then another one comes up being able to have that grit, determination, patience, and being able to do it. And I say this a lot, people forget like how laughed at this whole thing was. I mean, literally laughed at, you know, so you just have to almost be like an SEC football coach where you just silence all the noise. You don't give up about any opinions. You know, what you trust is what you've learned, you know, and what you've studied and what you've, you know, you trust that you trust the process and you trust the pro you trust the scientific method, not to be candid, but it's, that's pretty much what it is. You, You trust that that continues to work over and over and over. And, you know, once you really have faith in that, then, and you also have the fortitude just to silence the noise because there's a lot of it. I mean, a ton of it. Oh my God, to take prime example, it takes an artist down the road and this would happen all the time. We're golden. We're three weeks in. We could be the fastest growing record in the history of the chart, which this has happened. But then somewhere on the way from Abilene to Mid to Abilene to Midland, you know, they're all in a van and the drummer's upset. And the drummer all of a sudden is like, you know, this thing will never work. We're out in Steel Millville, and no one here even knows us. What the next thing you know, the artist is like, oh my god, this thing isn't working. I'm like, or it's just the fastest growing record of the year. Calm down, you know, give this time, and then see it come to fruition. But right. you have you have to go through that. You have to be willing to believe in yourself. That that's and I hate to say that's one of the biggest skills: believe in yourself. Yeah, because you can't let negativity in general be a deterrent, you know, cause it, if it, if you do let negativity be a deterrent, then you're never going to get to where you want to go. Right. I mean, you're going to go into everything with a bad mentality. You're going to give up. Yeah. And if you give up, well then you never know exactly what it could have been. Oh, um, I mean, mindset's huge. That's a, the skill set is cultivating a strong mindset. Yeah. Um, so what was, uh, what was next after apex apex then, um, Rob and I got divorced, you know, we <laughs> fell out of alignment, you know, as folks do. He'd already moved to Arkansas. And by the way, you know, we're totally cool now. But, you know, at the time, went through a divorce. And, um, and I started Vision, you know, to kind of pick up where we were going because I was creating this to be a 360 company. And so, and then with Vision, you know, most of the clients, you know, came with me, mm. opened up, you know, had the label still, I had the distribution, and then started artist management. And then, you know, built, built that and started to really get, you know, Vision doing its thing and um you know managed uncle lucius you know took them from like i don't know five thousand to three thousand maybe five on a great month you know to like 30 to 40 in a relatively short period of monthly time listeners? no no um that dollars in the bank oh dollars. monthly dollars yeah touring dollars Interesting. Bef- before merchandise very nice yeah so again the metric that matter i don't say that the other ones don't matter but those others exist for that at least from the artist, you know, perspective. So in, in doing that, you know, I really, in that, I was, I'm envisioning everything in the beginning. Like I do all of this from a total 360 degree perspective. How do we create a win, win, win? Like how does, how does everyone in this transaction win? And if I could figure out a way 
that's it. If I could figure out a way for like everyone in the transaction to win and it works, you can repeat that over and over and over. And so, you know, the more I grew with vision, you know, I, the more that I was able to kind of look at the artist, not just at as a song on the radio, I'm looking at is building, you know, building their presence in the markets, but then also, you know, tapping into like their brand, like who they are, you know, and that's it. You know, we did a partnership and this was a really pivotal moment for me. We did a partnership with what's now Feeding America. At the time, it was a Texas food bank network. And Kevin Galloway had a song called Keep the Wolves Away that we knew was a monster. And my mentor, Van Fletcher, has actually helped me kind of consummate that, you know, management deal. And so it was our second single. And, you know, then had a vision, no, no pun intended with the company name, of like, okay, if we can incorporate an organization that speaks to what that song's about. Because the song is about his dad losing his job, you know, on an oil tanker. And, um... And essentially, like he had to keep the wolves away. Now, so it's like going your son. Like now, now you're you're the man in charge, and so that's a big responsibility. So when you're speaking to hunger, you know, I mean, that's always you know going to be an ish, a thing. And so we, um, I spoke with Celia Cole. The um, it's actually from Steamboat Music Fest. Pitched to her the general idea of it. You know, she, I said here are the markets that we're going to be in. We've already got this teed up. You know, I think it'd be really great if we let the food banks know, and when folks come, we could do a portion. You know, of all these back when people bought albums, you know, album sales to the local food banks and they could set up their booth right next to the Uncle Lucius's booth. You know, she loved it, you know, so then sent out a thing to all of her, all of those um, branches, you know, with the tour dates. And, you know, we went back and took the video with the video producer, Van Fulcher, and we used their stock footage to create the PSA. And then when that video and that single launched, you know, took a little bit at radio, I won't lie, you know, and even that was before things went totally viral, but when it hit, I mean, it, it blew up. I mean, we were, I remember it went from, you know, barely getting town to town to like, we even had a publicist on board that Van, you know, had brought in Jules Wartman and it went from like zero to like every television station in every town they're playing and wanted to cover it. And it just, I mean, it, it just blew them up, you know, and people, Kevin this is an important thing too. Kevin would tell the story at a show. And yeah. you hear the story, and it's real. He's not, I mean, this is, you can't fake authenticity. And he goes, and guess what? There are people in East Texas that are hungry tonight. And if you go buy a merch booth, you know, if you're going to spend anything, put a dollar in the East Texas Food Bank Network. And I mean, people were flocking over there, like emptying their wallets, hitting the ATMs and emptying it. And guess what? They did the same, you know, for Uncle Lucius. And it, to me, that was my first aha moment of, okay, when you can really kind of tap into who an artist is as a human being, you know, and when it's done inauthentically, everyone can see through it, but when it's real, you know, when you can really make that kind of connection, you know, there's so many things, it becomes so much bigger than just that artist or that song, you know, art is then being used, you know, to make the world a better, and that sounds cheesy, make the world a better place, but it really is. And when it's authentic, I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful, like doors flung open that you would never see fly open for anything because now it's, a, it's not about the band. It's about how are we going to help, you know, people in San Angelo, Texas, how are we going to help, you know, our own community. And when we tapped into that, you know, I mean, everyone won. So just for the sake of time and everything, you started, I just want to hop into the artist management. Yeah, totally. Because that's a big transition. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, there's no, we talked about education in the beginning. Yeah. There's no education really that can teach you how to be a good artist manager. Totally. You could learn the ins and outs in a textbook, but it doesn't teach you, like you're not going to, know the real world experience from a textbook. Correct. So how did you make that jump? And uh, was Hayden the 
Not he was he the no first, no Uncle like, Lucius was the first. Okay. So, but that was with that wasn't with Driver's Seat Entertainment. No, no, that was with my company before. Gotcha. And clarified that you know went through personal divorce, had to shut down the company, and so that was a big part of that. And so that's where Driver's Seat came from. So just like when I had to shut down Apex for a business divorce, I went through a personal divorce and had to shut down Vision. And I mean, it was a really long, dark period, dark chapter. The great news is on the back end, you know everyone's better and we're now you know that was the birth of driver's seat entertainment which is when i met you correct was through hayden kaufman a guy that that when i was a freshman in college this was 2018 i saw him on social media and i was like he's good he doesn't have a lot going on right now somehow found him we got to connecting and he is the reason that i'm in music business right now so then i got to connect with you so Tell me the story about how you got connected with Hayden and uh, everything that just went on with that. And totally. more about Driver's Seat Entertainment. Totally. So I started Driver's Seat Entertainment, you know, to pick up, but, and I got totally out of radio, you know, so that picked up straight at artist management because that's where everything was going. And so, you know, one of the things I did is, you know, I, I connected with Eddie Gore, you know, with um, RCA Studio C, and he was looking, you know, for someone to kind of help you know, help out with the studio. And, you know, Hayden was an artist that he was producing. And so he connected me with Hayden and it's wild. Like I'd prayed after all of this, after that whole nightmare, I'm like, look, you know, find me a young Pat Green, someone who's young, who's hungry. Like I'll find it, you know, I'll pave the way, you know, on this end of it, but you know, you can't do it unless you got someone who's hungry and who is, you know, ready to get after it. And so, you know, shortly after he, you know, introduced me to Hayden. And so we instantly clicked, you know, we totally had the same mindset, you know, in total alignment, you know, when we started and essentially, you know, what I did is I started managing him, you know, and then from there, you know, ultimately, you know, we made a change, you know, studio wise, you know, and then finally, you know, as we just started, you know, getting after it, you know, applied a lot of the same, honestly, a lot of the same fundamentals, a lot of them, you know, that, that really helped drive the folks in Texas. Like we didn't have a real format here, but you know, I approached the map in the Southeast of like focus markets. Okay, where do we, where can we go into, you know, and we would really, you know, kind of do a map through state radius. Like where can we go in? And I get, that's where I really got to know, like in the beginning, if I'm getting to know the radio program directors, then here I'm really getting to know the talent buyers. Now I got to know the talent buyers in the Southwest because you have a roster that big, you're gonna be doing business with everybody. But here, that's where I got to really see the folks that, you know, that really moved the needle, you know, on that end. And so, you know, it was awesome. You know, first part of the week, he was really, really strong in the creative process, you know, and so, which is why, how you get to the great songs, you know, yeah, definitely by doing that. And so, you know, kept a really strong release schedule and, you know, really worked to get, you know, him out, out on the road, you know, insolvent. And so that, um, and then when Better Off, you know, hit, it's a function of, you know, people, and you know, we got calls everywhere and everyone thought we spent a bunch of money and we didn't spend a dime. And what it was, if you know the honest God truth of yeah. kind of what made that happen was the system, you know, three days a week, he's writing now. And he, he says the best. It's like, you're not going to catch fish every single time, but guess what? If you're going back that many times, you know what I mean? You're bound to, you're bound, you have much greater probability, right. you know, of catching a big fish. And so then you catch the big fish, you know, and you test it, throw it out on TikTok, and then every everyone feels it's a big fish. But then anytime it's exposed publicly anywhere, they're like, "Wait, that's a really big fish there," 
you know, and you've also got, um, you know, and this whole time too, one thing I didn't mention was in addition to driver's seat, I also was the co-founder of Hilo Digital with Tanner Lewis. And so I got to learn, you know, from a very macro standpoint, kind of the inner workings, you know, of the di- like where the digital world was, you know, right now. And I, again, I approached it from a very macro standpoint. And so with, with all of that, what made that hit was a really incredible song, you know, produced by a really great producer. Also, Wales Tony, you know what I mean? Didn't ridiculous. If great anyone job. was there, I mean, like he came in with the blueprint and half the stuff in that video he made up on site. Yeah. And it was, if anyone's ever had a chance to see him do this, it is like watching alchemy. He'll say, okay, now grab those buckets, grab that thing. And I was looking at me, it's like, don't ask questions, just do what he says. Yeah. And he does it, you know, and that's what he does. I mean, he'll go in there and just create these incredible moments, you know, and so, you know, you have all that, you know, hit. And the, again, how did, how did we get to that song? He did the work. Yeah. And that's like, yeah. it's sitting at like and, 26 million streams yeah. right now organically. Yeah. And, and here's the thing too, the release schedule, consistent, mm-hmm. you know, and guess what? When you're doing the work, then it's not a function of, you know, oh, we got to release the songs. That's all we have. No, it's like, oh, and we would laugh. We're like, okay, here's the next 10 songs. But guess what? I'm laughing. I go, we could probably plan one or two ahead and we'll go and put placeholders but I guarantee you with the material that's coming out now, I can get a call tomorrow and get a little text and go, okay, whatever we're releasing in April has just been replaced because that's, and that's what happened. So all of a sudden, like songs are getting kicked off the boat, which is great. So every release, oh, sorry, hitting the microphone, every release, it just got better and better, you know, because the work was being done right. with it, you know, and then you match that with getting out on the road and performing and really getting the band tight. You see what I mean? It's like yeah. both, both of those had a big impact on it so we, no we didn't no money was spent to do that yeah i'd say i mean it's just crazy for me i'd say he's one of the top indep- i mean you have a bunch of independent artists you have muscadine bloodline i want to say mike ryan is mm-hmm. independent um but then hayden just no label nothing yeah just organic work yeah and it all happened millions and millions of streams the music video has how many millions of views i've lost count at this point it's up there and i know the uh the clean work vest yeah helped yeah. out with that too i tell you it's funny <laughs> I, I talked to another um couple of artists that have gone viral and there is something there's so many haters out there mm-hmm. you know that it's funny like anytime you can do something that elicits haters you know it's really then the hardcore fans defending the artist with the haters is you know what really makes it go viral so that's i always think it's amazing that people like really have spare time to actually write some hateful message being totally serious yeah. on a thing. But no, that was a, that was a big part of it too. Well, they say there's no such thing as bad publicity. Yeah. So people coming on there to say mean and negative things. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's another view. It's another comment. It's just more interaction for the engagement engagement. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So where are you at right now? Cause you no longer work with Hayden. You're working with, you've worked with a couple other artists since then. Well, se- several. Yeah. Basically this year, I've been focusing, like I said, on the beginning, you know, and kind of building three tiers, you know, because management, you know, management done right, it is a marriage, you know, and so you think about in your, okay, think of it this way, in your entire life, from like grade school up until now, you know, it's like there's some people where you'll end up marrying their high school sweetheart, you know what I mean? But then you go to college, you'll have different relationships, you know, you have relationships after. And so I honestly believe management's kind of the same thing. You know, so there is, you know, again, everything was on, you know, it's always really, ter- yeah. People don't understand that. Yeah. It's like they hear, oh, he's not management anymore. What happened? Yeah. I mean, I've experienced that. Oh yeah. 
it's I was managing one of my best friends. Yeah. It just didn't work out. That doesn't mean we don't like each other. It's, totally. It's just like it's the business. Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, not to get spiritual on you, but I believe too, you know, when you're like living in your purpose and you're doing your thing, the people that are ultimately meant like even back before I was with Hayden, I said, okay, here's, you know, here's what I'm determined to do. And this is exactly the kind of person that I really want to come in, you know, to my life. And then here comes Hayden, you know, and then, you know, and I probably have changed too, you know, a lot since then I was coming out of a very dark chapter. So, you know, I've got very kind of clear on exactly, you know, what alignment is for me, if that makes sense. So that, so now what am I, what I'm doing now is I believe that, you know, there's so much Intel that if, some, and I used to do this all the time. If I'd pass on a client, I would, back then I would write down a list of like 10 things. I'm like, look, you're good, but we're not there yet. But, you know, if you just do these things, these 10 things, check in with me every six months. Only one out of 10 artists would do that. But guess what? The one out of 10 that did it, it worked. They crushed it, ended up working with them. And so the principle there is teach a man to fish. And so I've got this, again, back to this artist development program where I do a lot of of the heavy lifting on it, you know, cause there's certain things that kind of, I don't say only I can do, but I can do it much quicker. But the second I do it and I can hand them the keys to whatever thing is being done. And they now know that it works cause they've experienced it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Now it's like a much quicker way than if had, they had to learn all those things on their own. Right. So I've got, you know, four artists, you know, in that, and then I've got one in consulting you know, and ultimately, you know, there's going to be someone that's going to fill the management spot. But again, it's a marriage, you know. And so my main thing is, you know, I wanted this year to be a huge pivotal year in creating this program that could help anyone in any part of the world, literally. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's designed to do, you know, to be able to help an artist grow a path, take their following, you know what I mean? And grow, use that, you know, to translate to a solid hard ticket foundation that's scalable, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that's been the mission of that program and I've kind of been quiet about it for a little bit. So this is the first time it'll be kind of publicly known, but, um, but really excited. There's some really incredible case studies that are happening right now that yeah. everyone's going to be seeing. Well, I'm excited. We'll, uh, we'll have to have you back and you can kind of talk about everything that's been going on and educate us all on it more. Totally. But uh, before we end the podcast, I just, I want to say thank you because like me coming in, the only way I learned was listening to podcasts and stuff. So thank you for coming on. But also you've been for the past, I mean, what, over a year now, I've been able to just call you, text you with any questions about anything in the business. You've been there with advice. I appreciate it. Um, I learned a lot from you working with, when you were working with Hayden, when I was booking him, just everything, the whole process. I've shaped my business after what you, you guys were doing. So, man, I greatly humbled. And I'm one thing I want to say too, so happy, you know, to give that advice. Cause it, it's a win-win, you know, like I said, if, you know, I can tell you anything, I know that you're actually going to take it to heart, you know, and you're actually going to, you know, do it, mm -hmm. you know, and that's huge. And so that's, um, and I've got mentors like that, you know, too, that I'll call and I can, pick up the phone anytime, no matter where they are on tour. And I'll say, Hey, you know, I got a question about this. And they're like, Oh man, they'll stop what they're doing, you know? And they're fired up because they know I'll listen to them and I'll do it, you know, and it'll work. So honestly, I should be interviewing you because what <laughs> you've got going on right now, I mean, this is 
pretty, pretty amazing. And I love too, that you told me everything was it six months ago, four months ago ish. Yeah. Yeah. You say, Hey man, it's, here's what I'm thinking about doing. And then here we are four, six months later. And like everything you said to a T yeah. you've done except the cameras. What's that? Except the cameras. But to see, this makes for a great story. Though. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it makes for when you're like, back, folklore. when you're back, we'll, we'll have like makeup artists and everything. Yeah. We need to do ready. some sort of spoof with it. Like have an entire <laughs> multi-camera, you know, yeah. experience. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I remember this was like our first big show for me as a manager. We played with Dylan Carmichael mm-hmm. at the Dallas Bull in Tampa, Florida. And I remember uh, Make Wake Artists reach out, Dylan Carmichael's day-to-day manager, and was like, hey, we, we want you guys on the show. Think you'd help with tickets, whatever. And I had no idea how to even work that. So you were my first call. Within like 10 minutes, you talked to me. We had everything figured out, and I booked the show. And it was just like, it felt good to have somebody, me not knowing anything or really anybody, having somebody that could just guide me through it. And I've learned a lot from you. So thank you. It means a lot that you came on. Man, likewise. Honored to be here. We will, we will blow it up with the cameras. Absolutely. Next time. Well, appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. Likewise. Thank you, brother.